this morning, uh, I want to say that we're continuing in the series called Choices. And how many of you enjoyed this series so far? Amen. Amen. It's been great. Amen. It's been really good. And last week we talked about the relationship choice. And there's some really, really important things to, to think about when you think about the relationship choice. One is this. In relationships, you have to decide, if you're going to have healthy relationships, that you, you want to choose relationship over being right. Amen? How many have had an opportunity to choose a relationship over being right this week? Yeah? I have, a, I have an old pastor friend. He told me, listen, I have a happy marriage because I'm O in a million. Okay? You've got to choose relationship over being right. And choices by their very nature say that we come to a fork in the road in our journey every single day. I would say the most important choice you're going to make uh, today and tomorrow will be not just today. It'll be every minute and every breath that you take. It'll be an opportunity to worship Jesus with that breath, an opportunity to give your life back to him over your flesh. How many of you recognize that your flesh speaks pretty loud? Okay, today we're going to be talking about the growth choice. And so our decision is to silence that flesh and to choose Jesus. But you've already been making that decision today. You made a, you've made a bunch of decisions this morning already. You've made choices. You chose to get up. You chose when you heard your alarm go off to open your eyes and not to hit snooze and roll back over. You chose to get up, get dressed, and come here. And I want to say that we often have the freedom to choose, but we often don't have freedom to choose the consequences for those choices. And consequences aren't all negative. Consequences are positive. In fact, where we've been in this series, the Beatitudes, Jesus begins his ministry with a sermon uh, between Matthew 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. I've been studying it for the past year. It's, it's pivotal to our lives as Christians and followers. It's something that if you're looking for where you need to begin in following Jesus, start there. At the very beginning, he starts with the Beatitudes. He said, look, if you want to know good consequences, then choose the kingdom. If you want mercy, how many of you need mercy? If you want mercy, be merciful. If you want to be known as a son or daughter of God, he said, choose being a peacemaker. If you want to inherit the kingdom, then be willing to be persecuted. See, all these choices, a willing choice, an action to, to choose his way over our own, leads to good consequence. But he did this as he gave this sermon away to thousands during a time when the foundation for truth was still a search. They were, they were searching for hope. They were searching for purpose. They were searching for a foundation as the political system and the religious system of, of their day was crumbling beneath them. Jesus shows up on the, on the scene and the people are hungry for practical answers. But Judaism is defining righteousness by its own terms. And that brought no lasting satisfaction. The Roman Empire was on the rise. It was about building an empire that would dominate the world at the expense and the value of the individual. So people begin to hear about this man named Jesus. Some are calling him the Messiah. And he's spending time with the unlovely. He's spending time with those that they thought were demon-possessed. He was spending time healing the deaf. And he's giving sight to the blind. And he's allowing the mute to speak. And the one who is going to deliver them from political dominance and religious bondage may just be Jesus. So these people were hungry for something new and they were hungry for what he was saying. Jesus comes with a different message and it's one that brings lasting peace and security. Purpose. There must be a conscious choice in our lives daily to choose the kingdom over what the world is offering. And Jesus begins his ministry by declaring and defining the right kinds of choices we can make as he gave us the Beatitudes. These are the ways we can help to shed the hurts, habits, and even our hang-ups of our past. But i got to start by saying this. It's not really a point as much as a disclaimer. You ready for it? 
Here it is. You're never going to grow unless you want to. You have to choose to grow. The growth choice is this. You're only going to grow if you want to. I can tell you that you need to grow, and, and that would be true. I can tell you that we all need to grow. Your, your life will tell you that you need to grow. You're much bigger than you once were as an infant. You ate so that your body would be nourished. You have a mental capacity that exceeds that when you were an infant. You have emotional capacity that exceeds that when you were an infant because you've experienced life. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've succeeded, but you've experienced that, and you've grown. But spiritual growth is something that's necessitated for us, but you'll never get it unless you choose it. How many of you know the definition of insanity? It's to continue doing what you're doing and expecting different results, right? Exactly. You have to choose to want to grow. When I showed up to play baseball at college, I showed up uh, on the scene, and my strength and conditioning coach was different than the one I had in high school. In high school, I had one that wanted us to be strong. But when I got to college, my college coach looked at me and he said, Son, how much do you weigh? And I... I was a senior stepping in as a college freshman, 18 years old. I weighed about 135 pounds, okay? But because coach was giving me a look like you need to get bigger, I said, I weigh about a buck 40, you know? Gave myself five pounds. He said, look, we're going to need to put about 30 pounds on you this year. And I said, what? He goes, 30 pounds. I said, I've never gained that much weight in my entire life. How am I supposed to do that in a year? He goes, we need to put 30 pounds on you this year. I said, coach, hold on. Before you get a little ahead of yourself, I said, I'm pretty strong. I mean, I did get to this level. I'm playing ball here. I think I'm okay. He said, I'm not concerned about how strong you are. What I'm concerned about is the catcher we're going to play midseason who's about 6'4", 350 pounds. And when I send you around third to score and he stands between you and home plate, it's going to be like a bug hitting a windshield. <laughs> I need you to get bigger. You got to grow. But see, the thing is, when you tell someone they need to grow, it's not intrinsically motivating. If I tell you you have to do something, that's not motivation. You have to want it. And when you want something bad enough, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that, that coach ended up bringing me into the cafeteria the next day for breakfast. When I described to you what he would make me eat so I could gain 30 pounds, um, let, me, let me explain. I had not seen my team eat this much in the past, let alone just me. Eight waters, four milks, four juices, a 12-ounce steak, 12 hard-boiled eggs, two bowls of oatmeal, and an entire plate of fruit. That was breakfast. He looked at me and said, I'll see you at lunch. After two weeks of burning those calories every day in the Florida heat at practice, I learned. I learned that I needed this fuel. I was getting bigger. I was getting stronger. And my body was able to endure things that it couldn't before. How many of you have ever had a coach, teacher, or a pastor, or a parent look at you and see something in you that you didn't see in yourself? They saw more in you. He saw more in me, and he was willing to push me past my limits. And after a while, I let him. Why? Because I believed, in, I believed at the heart of who I was that he was pulling for me. And he wanted me to just do my best. In John 15, that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. 
In John 15, Jesus is trying to tell us that he is pulling for us. So in John 15, I'm just going to read it as he explains his relationship to us as the vine and the branches. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I want to say that one again. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There's a lot of people today, and just like in his day, who are still trying to earn God's love, and he gave it to you at the point he decided to imagine you and dream you into existence. He's already loved you, and you are of highest value to you. There's no earning it with God. In fact, Dallas Willard said it like this. God is never opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Amen? Amen. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. But you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. There's three things that he's pointing out here, and I'm going to point them out and unpack them one by one. Here it is. First of all, he says that as the vine, he's our life source. Two, that we must remain in him. And three, he seeks to prune those he loves so he can get more fruit from them. The first one is this. We have to stay connected to our life source. Did, how many of you have like just had times with your spouse where things things seem a little off and you can feel it. You feel disconnected. Disconnection from him is meaning you're not giving that, that re, the relationship has seemingly on your part lost value. It's never lost part on his part. It's never lost that value. He's continuing to pursue us. But what we have a tendency to do is forget how loud our lives are. How many of you have a phone? Hands up, raised up. Smartphone, right? Okay. Because you raised your hand, your life is loud and busy. And there's a million voices vying for your attention. Okay? What we have to be able to do is trust what, what the Lord gave us when he called Samuel. And what Eli, his mentor, taught him in 1 Samuel 3. When the Lord calls, you simply still your life, get as quiet as you possibly can, and you respond with, speak for your servant is listening. In 1 Kings 19, he did this with Elijah, and he showed us it a little bit differently. It says that suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I want to unpack what he's saying there first before we go further with this. You see, Elijah had just seen a drought ended because he prayed for rain because God called him to. The people of Israel had led them to drought because of sin. And then he prayed for fire to come from heaven because the sin that they were committing was they were spending time one foot in with God, one foot in with the prophets of Baal. And as they worshipped Baal, they, they literally lived a dichotomy. They were living duplicit. And so Elijah becomes burdened and he says, once and for all, we're going to prove who's God. So fire comes from heaven. This guy prays for rain, it comes. This guy prays for fire, it comes. All these big moments happened in his life. And as soon as these things took place, a hit was put on his life, and he runs as far as he possibly can. 
It says maybe 100 miles towards the, the mountain of God, the Mount Horeb. And when he gets there, he goes into a cave and he hides. He's hiding for his life because of a death threat that's been put on him. And it says when he gets there, suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? How many of you have ever been somewhere where you weren't supposed to be? How many of you have ever run somewhere in fear that God never led you? You see... Elijah made a decision in fear. He had been really closely connected to the Lord, so much so that like God's lips were like pressed against his ear, and he's telling him what to do. He's saying, pray for fire, and it'll come. Set up this big institution where you're going you're, you're gonna to have like a challenge, and you're going to put a bull on a torn-down altar. You're going to cover it with a precious commodity of water, and I'm going to consume all of it. Do that. When, when you see God move like that, I have a hard time believing. It's, it's really hard to fathom someone being afraid when, when a woman puts a hit on your life. And there's, there's, I mean, trust me, there's nothing more scary than a scorned woman. But, but when you just saw that happen, why run in fear? It's because we're human. We have a tendency to forget quickly that God is with us and God is moving amongst us. And in fear, he runs. When he gets there, here's something that God decides to do. He decides to show Elijah just how with him he is and where he's to find him. He says, uh, Elijah gives a justification for why he is where he is and why he's running fear. He's, he's basically giving justification. He says, look, they're trying to kill me. I did everything you asked. They're trying to kill me. Then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. Get outside the cave, and the moment the Lord, in that moment the Lord shall pass by. It said, a great, and, a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains, was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire consuming everything that was left, scorching the earth, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that fire, there was a voice on a breeze. It was a soft whisper that said, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And that suddenly that voice spoke to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, it's with emphasis. God asked twice because he was saying to him, look, I never called you here. You ran here in fear. I know that you have seen me act in the big, but I don't always act in the big. I want you to understand that I'm in the mundane. And the most important things that I want to say to you are said in a whisper. Listen, what God has to say is the most important thing. And he often says it in a whisper. How many of you have a... Um, spouse or a significant other, hands raised, okay? Do you remember ever saying those all-important words to them? Do you remember, like, I remember sitting with my wife, and when I, when I realized that I wanted to tell her that I, I loved her, those three words, I, I remember where we were, and I remember how I said it. I pulled her close, I looked her in the eye, and I, I told her. I mean, it may have been this way for you, too. Maybe you took your significant other, you pulled them aside, maybe you held their hands, maybe grabbed their face, looked them straight in the eyes, 
said, I want you to come close. I want to tell you something really important. I love you! Right? You blow their eardrums and make it as big as you possibly can because you're saying these words. The most important things in life are always said in a whisper. That's been true in your life and that's been true in your life with the Lord. What he has to say is your most important, but you have to still your life. You have to quiet your life. There's a, there's a spiritual discipline that has to be reinstituted in the church, and it's called silence. Your lives are loud. Even if you were able to get noise-canceling headphones to it, cancel all the external noise in your life, then you would still be finding yourself pushing through all the internal noise, all the voices that vie for your, your, your mind and heart that are inside you. Like, how many of you are... You go to a time with the Lord, maybe you take your Bible, you sit down, you, want, you take a deep breath and you want to reset, and you want to find the Lord, but you find yourself thinking about everything that's yet to be done in your day, your list of what's to do, and you get so distracted by that. Here's the thing, I want to encourage you, take a scratch pad with you, I call it your not-to-do list, and I want you to write down all the things that are coming to your mind and put them aside so you can focus again. And after you do that, here's the thing. You're going to be flooded. Your mind is going to be flooded with all the things that have yet to be accomplished in your life. Your dreams, your desires, even your addictions. How many of you have ever went to spend time with the Lord and your mind is flooded with images that are not sacred? You go, God, I'm just trying to praise you. I'm just trying to spend time with you. Why do I keep seeing a naked woman? Listen. Because garbage in, garbage out. And what I want you to understand is you have been a product of a broken world that has done everything to per pervert this moment right here that should be intimate between you and the one who gave his life for you, the lover of your soul. And when you create that silent space, I want you to know something. Listen, that's not bad for those things to flood your mind. It's an opportunity, it's safe, it's a gracious place that he's already aware of and you give those to him because you are to cast your cares, your anxieties, your struggles upon him because he loves you. Do you hear me? Amen. Like this is a space, this silence. You, you I, I really believe solitude is important. The time where God speaks through his word and you can... You can have solitude. I think it's very important, but you can't have solitude without silence. Silence precedes solitude. And silence in and of itself is spiritual and it's safe. It is time with you and the one who loves you more than anyone else in this room, more than anyone else on this planet. You have to connect your heart to the vine and the life source therein. It's not just about a quiet time. I say, hey, read your Bible, say your prayers. You're not going to be motivated to do that. But if I say, look, apart from this is death. And he wants time with you. He knows everything that you're trying to do in your life to keep you busy from hearing what he has for you. And he has something really important to say to you. Three important words. He's going to say them in a whisper. In order to hear them, you have to silence your life. Would you be more motivated to do that? That's between you and him. Here's why I want you to do it. I want to say this point. Why would we do that and continue to do that? Jesus said we must remain in him. Those of us who remain in the vine will bear fruit. 
Next point. You're never going to make this choice if it's solely about facts. Facts will never drive you to make this point, but experience will. Here's my point. How many of you know of a, a little donut factory called Krispy Kreme? Ever heard of that company? Okay, so how many of you, like me, um, can be coming from a seven-course meal? I've never had a seven-course meal, just saying. How many of you can have gorged yourself on Thanksgiving dinner? Let's start there. But you will be driving down the road, and you see that KK in the air, and you get stopped at a light, and something happens as you're stopped at that light, and you know that your turn is not far. You see this red circle show up in the window with two very spiritual words in the window. Now, I'm not saying they're spiritual in the heavenly realm, like where God is, but I'm saying here on earth, when you see hot now, how many of you immediately start going, thank you? You begin to go to a place. It doesn't matter if I've had seven-course meal or Thanksgiving dinner. I'm pulling in, and guess what? It's not about the chocolate glaze for me. It's not about the sprinkle. It's about what I know has come through that vat fryer. It's about that little puff of goodness that is making its way down a conveyor belt through a waterfall of glaze and sugar and... And it's coming off that waterfall straight into the box. And if you time it right, if you time it right, that box will burn your lap in your car. <laughs> if you time it right. And it's two bites and that thing's gone. Melt in your mouth. You know what I'm talking about. I pull up, I see it, and I'm like, there it comes, four dozen. Because <laughs> I'm going to finish probably half of these by the time I leave the parking lot. You know what? I, I found out later that Vernon Rudolph, on July 13, 1937, opened the first Krispy Kreme. It wasn't in Atlanta, where Atlanta, Atlanta likes to take credit for a lot, but it wasn't in Atlanta. Atlanta, you know, they got some big Krispy Kremes, but that's not the original. The original is in Winston-Salem, in the historic district of Winston-Salem. And Vernon Rudolph had bought a, a special yeast-rising donut recipe from a New Orleans pastry chef, and he took it to Winston-Salem, and he wanted to make donuts so he could sell to local grocers. And so, so what he did was he, he started that factory downtown, and the aroma of his donuts was so intoxicating that everyone in the city would come and knock on the door and say, hey, can we just buy these right here, right now? Can we have donuts hot and... Now, the birthplace of those two very spiritual words. We want them now. And so that also birthed something else. He cut a window out of the side of his factory and started selling them directly to people. Just like you walk in and, and you stand at a window and they serve you donuts through a window. Just like that, that's where that started. But you knew that already, right? 
You guys knew the, 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 originer, the originator of Krispy Kreme. That was Vernon Rudolph. You knew that, right? You knew that. 1937, you were just doing that to pay homage to tradition and history. That's why you go to Krispy Kreme, right? You go because you know it came from a French pastry chef and Winston-Salem. That's why. That's why you go. That's why I go to Krispy Kreme, right? No. We go because we've experienced how good it is, and every time we experience it, we see that hot now sign flash up. We want it again. Psalm 34 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. That verse has everything to do with experience, just like Krispy Kreme has everything to do with experience. You've experienced how good Krispy Kreme is, and so you'll go back. The facts will never drive you there. So I say read your Bible, gain a lot of facts. It's never going to drive you to a place where you want to remain in Him. But experience will. It'll make you want to sit there, stay there, and stay there a while. The facts that you'll gain in that time about the Lord will only enrich your experience, but it starts with experience. So we have to go to Him and create silence in our lives so that He can speak the most important things to us. When we hear those most important things and we realize how good they are, we'll want to come back to them just like we want to go back for the donuts that go through the glazed waterfall, which I don't even know how close a Christmas cream is to here. Like, how, low, how close to the closest Krispy cream? All right, look, you're going to have to find one. Last, it says that He prunes those He loves and... He prunes them so they produce more fruit. He prunes those who are fruitful so they produce more fruit. How many of you learned in life that, that, um, that you grow most through trial? You grow, through, you grow most through trial. Malachi 3 told us that it's the refiner's fire that we go through, that the purification process of metal is that it's so impure it must be burned down to a liquid form seven times before it can be considered pure. That's why Peter, when he approached Jesus and said, hey, how many times in Matthew 18 do I forgive my brother? Seven times? And he was being magnanimous in that. He was saying seven times, right? That's purity. Listen, there's, there's this reality. You can produce more than you think you can. How many of you have noticed you can do more than you think you can? I asked a moment ago about that coach, that teacher, that, that person in your life who saw in you what you didn't see in yourself, and they pushed you to where you, you gave more than you thought. You went to your node limits, and you bust through that wall because they saw something in you because they were pulling for you, and you let them. You're never going to allow anybody... You're never going to allow anybody to push you past your known limits if you don't know and don't trust that they're pulling for you, that they want the best for you. Parents, one of the most important things you could probably say to your kids is not just I love you. It's, son, you've hurt me. You've messed up again. Honey, you failed, and that's okay. The reason I'm sitting with you right now and you've earned some consequences is because I am pulling for you. I believe that there's more in you. I see in you what you don't even see in yourself. And when someone looks at you and tells you that, how many of you are more likely to allow that person to have a license to speak into you and to push you beyond where you think you could, you could push yourself? 
How many of you are going to give that person license in your life to take you further? We grow most through trial. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's heavy. But growth has never, listen, growth has never looked like this, historically or biblically, ever. It's always looked like this. And relapse is a part of growth. How many of you have ever gone three steps but knocked back two? And you go, oh, I'm here again. And I could give up. But when I get knocked back too, if I just notice that the one who's pulling for me has brought me to this place, so I'll recognize I've been here before. I already moved past this. I already moved ahead of this. I can move forward. I've been here, know how to handle it. I'm moving on. And I'm ready for the next thing. I've already made it three steps, though I got knocked back too. Relapse is a part of the growth process. But we'll never give license to Jesus if we don't trust that he's pulling for us. We'll never give him license to speak the most important things in our lives in a whisper. Push us beyond our limits. We'll never continue to go back to him and experience that and see ourselves do what we didn't think was possible if we don't believe at the heart of who he is, he's pulling for us. That's the point of John 15. Is Jesus pulling for you? Do you trust that? Listen, last week one of my points in the relationship choice was this, is that life is not fair. Fairs are where you go ride rides, eat cotton candy. Did you know cotton candy was made here in Nashville by a dentist? (laughs) Did you know that? I did not know that. Cotton candy actually came from Nashville by a dentist of all people, job security. (laughs) But life is not fair. I've never read that in here. You've never heard that or experienced that in life. The gospel's not fair. You don't put an innocent and blameless person that came from heaven on the cross for all the people here who were guilty and deserved. It's not fair. Is Jesus pulling for you? Yes, because he went to the cross when it wasn't fair. This morning, if you desire to take these steps... And the growth choice, one, you've got to be able to create a space and time that is silent so that he can say the most important things to you. Two, you have to hear what he's saying and experience that it's so good that you'll come back to it repeatedly. And you have to give him license to get more out of you than you thought was ever imaginable. If you do that, this church looks different. If you do that, your office looks different. You do that, your school looks different. You do that, this place looks different, and we join God in a humble move of his spirit that will be solely about him and his name. has nothing to do with me. Do you know what Jesus is trying to get from you? It's not about a bigger building. It's not about a bigger name. It's not about a more successful ministry. That's not the fruit that Jesus is trying to get his church to bear. The fruit he's trying to get his church to bear is love, patience, kindness, goodness, Gentleness, self-control, that's the fruit that your Savior, who is pulling for you, desires to come forth from this place at a greater rate than it has to this day. More loving, more patient. Anyone here struggle with self-control? I just admitted Krispy Kreme. (laughs) 
he can do more.